we showed that even at orgasm, a lot of activity in the frontal lobes. And here's how I put it. It's not that your frontal lobes are active, but what are you thinking about? If you're thinking about the laundry or all the things that are bothering you, you're not going to be present to the sensations. But if your mind is focused on the sensations, then you're going to be able to really enjoy the experience. So it's a very big brain event. Hey, friends. Welcome to the Rose Woman Pod. Every week we talk about something that can move us from taboo to liberation, provocations for living whole, happy, and free from birth to 100. I'm your host, Christine Marie Mason. I'm the founder of a woman's intimate wellness company, a yogini, a tantrika, a mom of six, written a bunch of books. And I do this because I personally love to learn and I get to talk to the coolest people and share these conversations with you. Today, we're talking with Dr. Nan Wise. She is a certified sex therapist, a certified relationship specialist, a neuroscience researcher, and the author of Why Good Sex Matters, Understanding the Neuroscience of Pleasure for a Smarter, Happier, and More Purposeful Life. It was an Amazon bestseller because what she was doing in her dissertation work is fMRI analysis of genital stimulation, imagery, and orgasm in women. Basically, she discovered the genital cortex in the brain, sort of how the brain processes sensation from the genitals, which resulted in a bunch of studies on the neural basis of human sexuality. She says, the ability to experience healthy pleasure, those that feel good and are good for you, isn't a luxury. Sorry, Calvinism but a necessity for our overall well-being. So let's take a moment and just look at the word hedonia. Uh, comes from the Greek word hedon, pleasure, and from hedis, sweet or pleasant. And there is an entire ethical theory that pleasure, in the sense of having our desire satisfied and going toward the joy, is the highest good and proper aim of a human life. And there are whole psychoanalytical theories that pleasure-seeking and pain-avoidance together are the primary drivers of human behavior. But there are people who can feel pleasure, and there are people who have a hard time with it. The absence of the ability to feel satisfying pleasure is called anhedonia. It's a kind of numbness. And it matters because we're evolutionarily wired to feel pleasure in our physical selves. It drives our mental well-being. And when we're imbalanced in the core emotional system of pleasure experiencing, We get anxiety, we get depression, we get stress-related disorders, and of course, sexual dysfunction. Anhedonia, or the absence of the ability to feel pleasure, contributes to what Dr. Weiss calls the pleasure crisis, evidenced by soaring rates of mood disorders, stress-related illnesses, and a widespread sexual recession. So before we get started, I want to ask you one question. Do you think you, like the women in the study that Dr. Nan did, would be willing to train yourself to keep your head completely still inside of a MRI machine while having a genital orgasm for the sake of science? Let's find out just what that involved and so many more tips and insights into how to experience a richer and more fulfilling experience in life in a body on planet Earth. so happy to welcome you to the show because you are doing something that is deeply needed, research into how a woman's body and brain actually function. We call that the gender gap sometimes in medicine, but you study the brain and sexuality. I wonder how you got there. What what drove you to that? I was always interested in the brain, but when I was first in school, 
the, my first round of graduate studies, we didn't really have any way to look into the working brain. So I did some very brief work with a lab that studied animals. And I said, nope, not going to do that. That's not for me. And then I went and I became a clinical social worker. And then I became a sex therapist. And I studied all sorts of modalities for therapy to work on my own very anxious nervous system. So that was always something that I wanted to do was to learn how to work my nervous system better. I come from a long line of anxious people. So like instead of having like a coming of age party or sweet 16 or bar mitzvah, you would have your first panic attack. So given that, I mean, I, I don't mean to laugh at that. That's really, that's really actually something else we can talk about in terms of like transgenerational trauma in your nervous system. But well, actually, I love that you laugh about it because it's actually when we can destigmatize stuff and we can see that there's a mm. whole lot of different ways that we're wired. Some people, a lot of people are wired toward anxiety because it's evolutionarily advantageous to prepare and analyze and anticipate, but you can have too much of a good thing. So it's sort of like that part of the nervous system, the core emotional brain, it is very easily triggered in some of us. So back to what you asked, Christine, how did I get into it? I was fascinated with the brain and I always discussed sexuality with all of my clients because it was just a no-brainer for me to think about how's your work life, how's your love life, how's your sex life, how's your body, all of those things. So I was so used to in being inclusive to think about sexuality as an important part of our lives that when I got the chance, I actually was um, Beverly Whipple, who is one of my dearest, dearest friends. She was my mentor for my dissertation. She's the lady who gave the G-spot the name, the G-spot. She was one of the earliest and most important of all of the brain sex researchers, actually just a sex researcher, not just about the brain. When she invited me to come down to the lab to help them screen participants since I was already a clinician and they were working with functional MRI which is a really non-invasive cool method that you can sort of study the brain in action. It was like a done deal. So once I got there and I was helping her and Barry Kamasurak, who I actually years and years ago, uh, he's another one of the most important, I think, sex researchers in the world and, and physiologists. I had a brief stint that I worked with him when I was going to work with animals. So we came back together after 20 years and then I went and did the PhD because I had to really learn about the brain and I had to learn how to be able to study the brain and analyze the brain and get into the computer stuff and how to analyze the data, collect it. So it was just my kids had left and I was ready to do something really, you know, the next leg of my journey. And it's been such a joy for me. That period after the kids leave, I think is such a fecund and rich time that doesn't get talked about so much. But I love that you went back and, and mastered this new technology. For people who don't know how fMRI works, can you describe how it is for the patient or the subject? 
Well, as the subject, and I had to go in for many, many hours to test drive all my studies. So like when you look at the orgasm brain tapestry, that's my brain having an orgasm. But to make a long story short, it's very, very loud. When you're in there, you have to stay very, very still. And it's the least sexy place in the world, except for one of our participants said she thought she was like an outer space, like David Bowie. And so she got into a whole fantasy of being like in a spaceship, but it's the least sexy place in the world. I want to know how, okay, so what did you do to, to make the mood to test stimulation if you're in this least sex? Okay, describe what, what, how the studies that resulted in the book, how they are set up for the participant. How do you stimulate them? How do you get in the mood? By the time I had my research participants come in for my dissertation studies, we had spent a lot of time figuring out, number one, how to keep their head still. Because anytime you move your head and try to masturbate and keep your head still or have an orgasm, keep your head still, mm. really, really, really tough stuff. So that was about two years of figuring out how to do that. We couldn't use vibrators in the scanner. You can't use anything with electrical um, machinery because the magnet is so strong. It would just like the magnet would suck that vibrator in and like decapitate the person inside of the scanner. So we, what we needed to do was to be able to train people. So the people who volunteered for our studies were very easily orgasmic. Otherwise, why would you volunteer to donate an orgasm to science? So that was number one. And they were very motivated to be able to contribute because they all felt it was really important women's sexuality in the case of our female participants, they were so motivated. So they would use their minds to turn themselves on and they would masturbate themselves clitorally while they were in the scanner. So we had two conditions. One was they were self-stimulating, masturbating by rubbing their clitorises. And the other one, which is a lot more challenging, they had a partner who was there, not in the scanner with them, but standing next to the scanner, reaching in and stimulating their clitorises and trying to give their partner an orgasm. So suffice it to say, it was a lot easier for people to drive their own equipment in there then, because you can't see anybody, you can't see them, you can't talk to them, you can't give them feedback. So these were people who practiced on their own, kind of knowing what was going to be like, so that they managed to keep their heads as still as possible and to be able to practice how to elicit an orgasm for themselves, which was less challenging, and their partners doing it to them without any feedback. So it was really, a t and they were in the scanner for like an hour and a half. It was amazing, my participants, what they did to contribute. Did you give them like a golden clitoris badge or something? <laughs> what did they get out of it? Well, we gave them $100, but oh, I Oh my gosh, $100. And, and to be part of history. Yeah. Oh, they were wonderful though. Oh, that's amazing. And I tell stories about them in the last chapter of my book. I talk about sexual potential and how with their permission, I shared a couple of stories about how these women were not always so sexually comfortable. And they had many journeys, including some of them that started off where they were raised in a monastery, not a monastery, what would you call it, where you had- um, A nunnery, they, convent. Convent, that's the word, a convent. 
they raised in a convent, one particular woman where she had to take a bath with a with the sheet on because she wasn't even supposed to see her own body. So can you imagine that kind of, you know, education about sexuality and getting to the point where you were donating your orgasms to science? And she was one of our older, she was our oldest participant. She was 74 years old and came into the lab, had an orgasm by her, her, her own and the partner gave her an orgasm. What was the range of ages? About 24 to 74. That's wonderful. Yeah. So I have a, I have a question. You, you use the term sexual potential. There seems to be a natural distribution about all kinds of capacities in the body. We were talking briefly about the ability to hear or the ability to see. Does sexual potential live on such a continuum? Are all people hedonic? Can all people have an orgasm? Well, there are people who are challenged in terms of having orgasms. In fact, our newest study now which we're going to get back into the scanner, even though I said I would never do it again after doing the, the dissertation one. <laughs> we're going to study women who can have an orgasm, who have suffered from primary anorgasmy, who have never had an orgasm. So there are people who are challenged, particularly women. And with primary anorgasmia, Christine, I think it's really very straightforward in most cases is that they have not learned how to be able to lay down those pleasure pathways to connect the dots between the various nerves that the genital regions are wired with into the place of the brain that processes sensation and pleasure. So things like getting bad um, messages about sexuality inhibit women from exploring, young women from exploring their bodies and masturbating. And basically we say in neuroscience, the neurons are the cells that fire together, that get stimulated together, wire together. So the pleasure pathways, in fact, when I treat anorgasmia, where women or men for that matter who have kind of difficulty experiencing the sensations, I really help them use their minds to tune into the sensation channel. And I developed this exercise where People just touch the genitals and then think about touching it. Because in my study, I had women who, before they did any kind of sexual stimuli, would think about having being penetrated by a dildo rather than a speculum. You know, speculums are kind of the things that you get, you know, pelvic exam. It's not, most women don't report feeling pleasure when they're having a pelvic exam. But when they were imagining dildo stimulation, their brains lit up like a Christmas tree, the reward centers and everything. Mm. So it's really the best case scenario when you think about the most important sex organ is our minds. And when we can focus on sensations, we increase our potential for enjoying the pleasure. That's so interesting. So you're relearning your pleasure pathways by saying, I am touching myself and then naming the body parts and somehow you're, re you're, you're laying down new tracks. Exactly. And that can happen at any age? Yes. And what that does is, you know, a lot of times uh, people, because their minds are so active and Lord knows I have one of those minds from anxiety, we're like heads on a stick. We're not even registering sensations from our bodies. That's a lot of my clients not even people with sexual issues, people who are anxious, depressed, stressed, they're in their heads. So by being able to tune into the sensation channel, we are laying down pathways that can actually help us increase 
the volume on the body channel. And the body is very, very smart. And in my book, what I talk about are the seven core wired in body channel emotions that we share with all mammals and other animals and imbalances in those systems where we're too triggered into the defensive systems hijack us so that we're not able to really regulate like we could if that body channel is wasn't so disrupted. Well, you're learning as a child whether your body is worth listening to. I mean, I feel that there's a lot of things that happen, particularly as you mentioned earlier with religious trauma and sort of this, the messages that embodiment is bad that seem to take a long time to unwind. Exactly. We had a woman come on the show and talk about um, being raised in a a Mormon multi-wife situation as a child and how there were very particular messages about what she was good for and what she was used for, not to single out that religion as an example. So unwinding that, I, I think w- what I'm hearing you say is by practicing and speaking to my body and then allowing it to feel and then coupling it with new oral messages that I can rewire it so it feels more. Very well put, Christine. I like how you put that. And it's it's applicable in a lot of different ways outside of the bedroom too. Yeah, these body emotions. So if you want to know what those body emotions are, you should go and get this great book. Um, so tell me now, so you you put them in the fMRI, you've got them hooked up, you've got this special gold star group of orgasmers, orgasmers, orgasmic women, and now you're measuring. Uh, what were some of the key findings about the relationship between the brain centers and the genitals? That's a great question because one of the, um, there's only two groups of people crazy enough to study going all the way in the scanner. <laughs> us <laughs> people in holland what a shocker right <laughs> and the dutch group who were lovely people but they're using a different kind of brain imaging it's pet scan not so good for studying things over time so fmri was better and what they had actually barry and beverly did the first study ever of the brain on a sexual stimulation it was actually in spinal cord damaged women, complete spinal cord injured women in 2003. And they found even when women had complete spinal cord injury, they were getting in signals actually that were bypassing the spinal cord from the vagus nerve. So they changed like basically the anatomy books. So women with spinal cord injury sometimes report menstrual cramps and sometimes report orgasms. And the probably more of them would have orgasms if they knew it was possible. Because when people tell you something's not possible, you're not going to have an orgasm. But anyway, back to the question. Um, I forgot. What was the question you asked? Um, after <laughs> after you hooked them up in the MRI or the PET scan, those, those Dutch and gold award winning people, what, what did you find in terms of the, the way the genitals connected to the brain? So what we found was that it basically, genital stimulation enrolled so many parts of the brain. And as the stimulation continued, there were sensory areas, there were sensory integration areas, there were motor areas, there were emotional reward center areas all coming online. And then at orgasm, peaking, and then kind of coming down. And the reason why I brought up the Dutch guys is they said that women's frontal lobes had to turn off before they have an orgasm, like good luck with that. 
Like basically that was, that was their findings, which really were not replicated with us. We showed that even at orgasm, a lot of activity in the frontal lobes. And here's how I put it. It's not that your frontal lobes are active, but what are you thinking about? If you're thinking about the laundry or all the things that are bothering you, you're not going to be present to the sensations. But if your mind is focused on the sensations, then you're going to be able to really enjoy the experience. So it's a very big brain event. We're training our detail-oriented minds that run households and children and companies to put that detailed attention on our embodiment. Yeah, on the sensations. And the mind can continue in the background, which is so weird. Minds are so flexible. You can actually have your thoughts continuing in the background, but you bring the focus to the sensations. And, you know, being having sex can be a very creative time. When I was doing my dissertation and I was trying to figure out all this stuff in the brain, sometimes when I would, when I would have sex, my mind would go off, what's going on in your body right now? What's going on in your brain? Mm. And then I would just bring it back. And then I would just have this really creative feeling afterwards, you know, like getting relaxed and all of those wonderful peptides, the chemicals that get released with sexual stimulation and orgasm. They feel good and they're good for you. They're good for your brain. So that's another important thing to remember. So I've got this fireworks going off in my brain. Can you speak a little bit about the relationship between relaxation and safety and that frontal lobe? Brilliant. That's a brilliant thing. Relaxation really hinges on being able to feel safe. If you're not feeling safe, What's going to happen in your brain is the activation of the defensive systems. There's fear, usually associated with feeling unsafe. And when you're feeling fearful or when you're feeling enraged or there's another system that's panic grief, which is fascinating, that system is triggered. It's a defensive system that's triggered when we feel a threat to our resources, our relationships, which is another kind of feeling not safe. Mm. So until we can drop into feeling more safe, it's very hard to relax. Mm. So when I work with clients, I'm always working with helping them recondition the, you know, the autonomic nervous system from that flight, fight, or freeze kind of way where we're just like, to be able to use the body with the breath, the long, smooth inhale followed by the longer, smooth exhalation. The simplest, simplest breath tool tells your body to go into what's called like the parasympathetic, calming, restorative place where you start to feel safer. And when your body starts to feel safer, your mind can feel safer and then you can relax. So it's a very intricate relationship between relaxation and being able to feel safe that we can train the deep breathing and then all the environmental cues you know whether it's sound or fabric or lighting or whatever it is for you like those environmental cues and your partner or your lover also can engineer that a little bit i would imagine for people in the way they speak in the setting exactly those cues are very very important so one of the ways that we're wired to be able to create that sense of safety 
is by looking at and talking with each other in a very calm way. And Stephen Porges, who does polyvagal theory, uh, talks a lot about what they call the social vagus system that can downregulate with through eye contact, facial expression, and calm voices can also help downregulate that autonomic kind of like the the fight or fight response. I love his work so much. His work is such, it's like one of the most important bodies of work in the last 25 years. It's so fantastic. Yeah, he is wonderful. And I will say that Yak Pengsek, who is somebody who's going to be in, I think, about another 20, 25 years, the next Darwin. He's, uh, unfortunately, he's passed away. But he was the guy who mapped out the common circuits that these seven core body emotional instincts wire in. And he is revolutionary because in psychology to this day, we don't even acknowledge that. So, you know, at the top of our minds, we know what we need to do, right? Exercise more, have more sex, drink less, drink liquor less, all of us with the pandemic. We know what to do, but these bottom-up emotional systems actually make it hard for us to regulate them just based on will, which is why things like cognitive behavior therapy aren't aren't always so effective. So Pangsept, who he mapped out these systems, and it's just amazing that when I explain this to people, like what's out of balance when we can figure it out, then they can figure out how to work with it. And that's the whole point. I did a whole chapter on that, like understanding like how to operate your equipment more effectively towards what you want to create. And that takes the working, your planning mind in conjunction with your emotional mind to move you towards what you want Mm. to create, which is a very different frame. I love that you're talking about um, this voice piece too. I started listening. I don't know if you know the, about the the neuroscience behind this, but I, before bed, I started listening to these affirmations. And there's one particular voice, and it's this man who talks like this. And I'll tell you, 15 minutes of that, and I am out like a light. Don't wake up until the morning. And uh, and I was he. It, it does feel like it's doing some kind of magic incantation on my nervous system. Social Vegas. The sound of his voice. There it is. Down-regulating your autonomic nervous system into that feeling safe. I'm going to get his voice on my car, too. He sounds great. (laughs) Hey, hey, turn right and don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, great. This is so so interesting. I saw a, a study on meditation where they had sort of the little thing that looks like those old permanent caps or highlight caps where it had all the, li- what kind of a tool is that? Uh, the, the little brain measurer. That must be the EEG. So they have all of these electrodes okay. on the outside of the brain and they're looking at arousal patterns. So EEG is a great a tool for looking at how large groups of neurons are either firing together or not. So it's looking at rhythms of the brain. So that's different than fMRI in terms of looking at what's getting lit up. Okay. Yeah. fMRI is basically an indirect measure of neuronal activity by blood flow. Mm. So when areas in the brain get active, the body brain sends more oxygen there. And basically, very simply put, 
magnetic qualities of oxygenated blood are different than unoxygenated blood. So we can target very, very specifically a lot of regions that are going up, you know, their activities going up. But I would like to say something that I thought of when you talked about meditation. What is, and back to the idea of safety, all kinds of meditation, including things that we don't typically think of as meditation, like I do a lot of work with hypnotherapy, people do self-relaxation, all of them, what seems to be the active ingredient in all of these different types of mindfulness modalities, believe it or not, is about the ability to give yourself permission to be as you are in the moment and give the moment permission to be as it is. Mm, That's so beautiful, Nan. So I always like to say we need to, we'll feel safe in the moment when we realize that in the moment we can feel the support under our bodies. Nothing is happening in that moment. In that moment right here and right now, we can accept what is so, and we can tune into feeling safe. Mm. And that's what got me able to not get panic attacks anymore. Because with panic attacks, you start getting panicky about the panic. And so you go like seize up, you know, it's like, oh my God, it's when you can learn to like befriend your panic, befriend your anxiety, befriend your depression and listen to the messages that they have for you. You can loosen and soften around the reactivity. And it reminds me of what you said, Christine, about, you know, like being able to be in your experience, like your emotions being embodied. When you think about it, a lot of this is about being able to have the emotions peak and release. So we get trained, you shouldn't shouldn't feel that way, you shouldn't express that, you shouldn't feel this. So we're constantly interrupted in terms of the natural ability to tolerate and tend our emotions as information and listen into the information. And it's pretty clear if you tie this into those seven core systems that all have an evolutionary purpose that helps us meet our needs. You know, for example, fear. Is there really something to be afraid of? Listen into that. And also recognize if what you're afraid of is not about now, it's re-stimulating something traumatic. Yeah. If you're in high arousal, that's sometimes hard to parse it. But if you practice over time, I mean, I love the way you put it. It's so beautiful. Be as you are in the moment and let the moment be as it is. It's such a bringing into presence, full presence. And there's a there's a acceptance and like oh like almost like a self compassion, like oh there you go being anxious again. Hmm, interesting. Is there anything to be anxious about? But I feel like that takes maybe some practice or accompaniment in the beginning, depending on how bad it is. And that's why coaching, yeah, coaching, coaching helps a lot. Having somebody who sits in the feelings with you and encourages you to feel them fully. It was like, instead of trying to disrupt the feeling and make you feel better or change the channel with you, like encourages you to go a little bit deeper into the feeling so you can go into it and then it can peak and then you can release. It's it's a vital thing for world peace. It's I the first time I encountered this work, uh, it's called Sitting in the Fire. I was in the prison in San Quentin working with a group of people. And 
the inability to handle the emotion of rage or shame was what drove all of the crimes that the people had done in that room. And they spent a year just practicing feeling the feeling while others were with them. And by the end of the year, uh, they were like a different creature, different people. I'm breathing into that because it just makes me feel so good to hear about that going on in the world, that there are people who are leading these kinds of programs and groups. That program, there isn't a single person who's done that program who's come back to prison. Recidivism in California is 70%. And there isn't a single recidivist in that group that's done the emotional work. That re- it leans heavily into community. It leans into emotional regulation and meditation, emotional intelligence, and also communicating about difficult feelings. I feel it's very highly tied to what you're talking about here. But we're off track a little bit. I was going to ask you, if you could design any kind of tool set, like, don't you feel sometimes the whole history of science is the history of scientific instrumentation? Yes. Like you really have to have things that like you were finding when you did your dissertation. What kind of tool set would you need to get the most accurate read on a person's sexuality in the brain? And is that coming? Well, if you're talking about the technical tools, the fMRI is in its infancy, basically. It was around from like 91 on, and now they're doing some really cool things like putting fMRI together with something called MEG, which is kind of like the EEG stuff that you saw, but it goes on with fMRI. So there's really great tools coming along. And what I also think in terms of the toolboxes that we all need They're really pretty low-tech and simple. And I think if we could train kids and young adults in learning about the core emotional systems and how the brain-mind works, like the mid-level mind, the core systems are in the older part where we share that with animals. And it's under, like, basically, it's under the hood, but we know how we feel because it's expressed in our body. And then there's the mid-level mind, which is all that learning stuff, which can become very automatic. A lot of it is so learned that we don't even realize it's become automatic learning. And then we have that top mind that's super-duper smart but can't always regulate the bottom mind. And you know, things like ketamine, are you hip to what ketamine is? Mm -hmm. I just read this cool study today that what ketamine does is actually it kind of interrupts the the top-down stuff, like the brain and the habits that the brain does around trauma and around looking at the world and misperceiving. Ketamine interrupts that. So it actually kind of cancels out the bad stuff the top-down mind is doing which is really cool. So another huge area is the use of psychotropics and other kinds of treatments for mental illness, depression, addiction, fabulous. LSD was one of the best tools for addiction, but you know, um, Nixon didn't like the hippies on the street using it, so they, they took it away. But there's so much, we really need to learn to help people operate themselves more effectively. Like, for example, not being outside, not getting any sun. The sun goes right through the, to the, into the retina, through the hypothalamus. And then being on these things all the time and not really, you know, the devices not paying attention to each other hijacks the dopamine system, which is the seeking system, which works with our defensive systems, fear, rage, panic, grief. 
and also works with our ability to have play. Care powered by our own opioids is how we feel good. People who don't have enough receptors or enough natural amounts of these things are going to look to outside sources like the opioids. And my God, what a terrible crisis we're in. And we treat these people like criminals rather than understanding that for whatever reasons, genetics and environment, people aren't getting the proper amount of feelings of well-being from their own natural you know, chemicals, which the brain mind is a pharmacy. And how we think. I mean, talking about mental hygiene, like practices of mental hygiene. Uh, okay, you <laughs> you get to, what is it, Homo Ludens, the man who plays, playing man. You get to play, you get to go outside. Basically, you need to act like a child more often, right? Exactly. Treat yourself well, get off the device, all these things. You you can write a whole thing on mental hygiene, the, the care and feeding of you. The, the play system is actually the source of our social joy. And kids can't even play with each other anymore. They don't do that rough and tumble play when they learn how to cooperate and compete because we don't let them have that kind of play anymore. So we're doing a lot of things that are really inhibiting. That's the point of my book, that a lot of the ways that we're living are affecting the core wiring systems in a way where they get out of balance. And when they're out of balance, we're out of balance. And you can work it. Much more simply, get off your phone, get outside, get sunlight and connect with people face to face, flesh to flesh if possible. And, you know, really go back to, like you said, play. And when people connect with each other, they're much less likely to get so divided and judgmental and aggressive and all of that. We need to really be able to learn how to elicit our care systems for each other and our play systems. And get curious, the seeking system, how to do this. This is a beautiful coming back around to sexuality also because the playfulness, like there's so much of Eros that's uh, made like all about the lingerie and the tiger and the bedroom, you know, it's so much like gets that. But so much of Eros is just goofing off and having fun with each other. Can you speak a little bit to play and sexuality? Most of my clients who come in are Thinking of sex as basically a performance in the case of men, Mm. or for women, they don't have access to active sexual desire. You know, there's active where you know you're horny and you want it. And then there's the passive, which can be ignited, you know, or receptive sexual desire by the right circumstances, the right connection getting out the vibrator and getting arousal going, get the party started. So what I really hope to do with my couples, both in and out of the bedroom, is to think about creating the relationship as a playground. You know, when you think about going into sex, play. It's not about having orgasms in any particular way. It's not about the penis thing hard. It's not about how your tush looks or whether you have a belly. You know, we are, that's the number one thing for women is body image is really screwing up our ability to relax into our embodied selves. And that's what our, that's what the lessons from the ladies of the lab taught me was that they learned to love their bodies as is. They learned to feel good and be in their bodies. So it's really like, you know, when you think about it and we all lose that sense of play, most of us, And if we had that play and that curiosity, we would be able to have more fun at work, 
we'd be able to have more ways of kind of coming together across the aisle in politics, across the divisive things in our families when people have different beliefs. We've lost the ability to play and we need it. It's, it's as I say in my book, pleasure is not a luxury. It's a necessity for a proper functioning brain. And I think the number one problem that's causing all of what we're seeing around us is anhedonia, the inability to get pleasure from our everyday lives. And part of it is how we've become these consumers, you know, hit the next you know, button for the dopamine blast on social media, like we've got disconnected from that actual physical body and the people next to us. That's why we're not having sex. Well, you're a grandma. You know how to, are your grandkids playing with you? My grandkids have not only taught me how to play, I've been able to play with them like I had, hadn't had with my own children because I was more anxious and more worried about getting like them fat. You know? So being a grandmother and a grandfather, my husband and I, we have such joyful times with the kids. And that's, and that's how they learn. Play is how mammals learn. And if we keep learning, we're never going to stop playing. I feel the same way. Uh, my my grandson the same, same, same. Just like getting, you can get, and and sometimes his parents, aka my children, get annoyed, you know, because like I'm like crawling around and doing ridiculous things with him, and you know, we're having we're play acting through like whatever problem, quote unquote problem, has arisen, and they're like, "Who are you? What are you crawling around on the floor for? Being an elephant?" I mean, <laughs> so I I love it. I love this stage of life. I would like to ask you before we wind up about what it's been like for you. You know, most of the women who are in the community are perimenopause, menopause or older. And there's a lot of anxiety present about aging out of being meaningful or not being beautiful or not not mattering anymore in the world. And many of them are on second half of life journeys to finding their own meaning and presence. And I wonder if you might give some advice on that from your own life experience. Well, first of all, we have such an issue with ageism in this culture. My friend uh, Ashley wrote a book, Ashton Applewhite, This Chair Rocks, and I interviewed her for my uh, blog. And, we, you know, the idea that, you know, old equals ugly is so pernicious. And guess what? I think that the capacity for women in particular to enjoy their embodied selves over their lifetime just gets better and better and better. So truly people of sexual potential, and that's in the last chapter of my book, are people who learn that how to connect with each other. The point of actually having sex is to be able to play and connect. It's not about how you look or your orgasms. They learn how to accept their bodies. They learn how to accept themselves. You're more comfortable in your own skin. And one of my supervisors years ago, Sandra Lieblum, who is a really cool sex therapist and unfortunately uh, died rather early. She used to say some people, some women think it's like you, you go to menopause and you go into sexual retirement. And that, you know, that kind of model is really antiquated. The other thing women need to know is that we do tend to lose active desire in long-term relationships. And if you don't compare your level of sexual desire to when you had like an peak in your new relationship energy. And you just look 
add it in a way that where you were at a different point in time, that really the key is getting turned on by life. Not about sex. Getting turned on by life is how we as women, and I think we in general as people, can really bring more joy to the, in the bedroom and also to be more enlivened in healthy, healthy hedonism practices that feel good and are good for us. I love that. Well, I want to tell you some things that I appreciate about you. One is that I love how you, throughout this conversation, honored lineage, people you've learned from, other teachers. That is such a wonderful practice. I love how you yourself are curious. You mentioned so many emerging modalities, whether it's you know Porges or NR, new relationship energy conversations or ketamine therapy or you know just so open. You're completely modeling this idea of staying curious. And I find myself ending this conversation with you, not only happy that you exist and happy that you've written this book and are doing this groundbreaking research, but very inspired to be more playful. I teach what I need to know. And that, <laughs> and I'm so lucky because that infuses me with the joy. And you're right. It's all about the lineage. And, and passing on the amazing work that everybody who's been my teachers, therapists, yoga teachers, people I haven't met, Buddhist nuns that I've read the book, and the <laughs> children, and to be able to be this conversation that we're having is really the key, is that we all can have these conversations. So as a final message to everyone, whatever you're doing, take a look at yourself in the mirror. Be grateful for this incredible embodiment, wherever it's at, whatever you're feeling. Just uh, let's see if we can be with it and love this life while we have it. Nan, Dr. Nan, sorry, Dr. Nan Wise. Um, I'm, you know, like the Dr. Jill Biden thing. You're always going to be Dr. Nan to me. Thank you, Christine. <laughs> always going to use your full title. You earned it. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really enjoyed it. You're magnificent teacher. And and I feel like you could be therapy, therapy, like anybody who's your client or, or in coaching or therapy is so lucky that you make it all seem so logical and gentle and easy. It's practicing self-love and sharing it with other people, Christine. Thank you for your work. Well, here's to living in awe and amazement, grateful for these outrageous, complex, and beautiful bodies, grateful for the mere fact that we're alive at all, May we treat ourselves, each other, and the earth as if it was all a treasure, because it is. And be assured that any time you feel small or contracted, there is a lie involved, because the truth of you is perfect nature, perfect wholeness, always more than enough. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and text the link to a friend. If you liked it a lot, please write a review and share it more broadly. Help us get the word out of all the great science and philosophy and ideas that are out there about how to live a life of more freedom and more impact and more love and more power and yes, more pleasure. You can find me on Instagram at the.rose.woman or at Rosebud Woman, my company that makes exquisite skincare and intimate wellness products for women from birth to 100. Okay, lots of love. Till next time.